Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are pleased to have with us Dr. Gerald Schroeder. Before we get into his bio, I first want to mention one small thing about the importance of science as it pertains to Judaism and life. For many people, science seems to be a threat to religion. But in reality, our tradition, our ancient tradition, has always maintained that science is as important as anything else. Why? Because it also reveals God. Because the author of the Torah is also the author of the world. Therefore, it is important for us to have these conversations. Now, do we have to agree with every single opinion? Absolutely not. Then again, we're not expected to accept all the different opinions of Chazal. Whether it's matters of science, whether it's matters of cosmology, outdated medical advice, or even opinions such as Midrashim that go against reason. So we have this long-standing tradition that goes back thousands of years, and that's always been the case. So I have to make a disclaimer because this is a very sensitive topic for people, and I understand that. And these are not necessarily all of our views, but we allow our guests to express their opinions and to give their side of things based on the research that they've done. So without further ado, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about our next guest. Dr. Gerald Schroeder lives in Jerusalem with his wife, the author Barbara Sofer. They have five children and a changing number of grandchildren. His formal education includes bachelor's of science degree, master's of science degree, and PhD, all earned at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. His theological training includes 20 years of study under the late Rabbi Herman Pollack and Rabbi Noah Weinberg and Rabbi Chaim Bravender. His professional experience includes seven years on the staff of the MIT Physics Department prior to moving to Israel and joining the Weizmann Institute of Science and then the Volcani Research Institute and the Hebrew University Isotope Separation Mass Spectrometer Facility. Currently, he teaches at Asia Torah College of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem and lectures worldwide on the amazing confluence of ancient biblical commentary and the discoveries of modern science. In addition, he is active in research in environmental radioactivity. Schroeder has in excess of 60 publications in the leading peer-reviewed scientific journals and has witnessed the detonation of a long series of nuclear weapons, atomic bombs, during research in nuclear physics. Schroeder is the author of several books, Genesis of the Big Bang, The Science of God, The Hidden Face of God, and God According to God. In the first full year of its publication, The Science of God was on the Barnes & Noble list of nonfiction bestsellers and was Amazon's best-selling book in the field of physics and cosmology for that entire year. His books appear in 10 languages. If you YouTube something called Proof of God in 5 Minutes, there are over 3 million views. Of these, about half are on Jewish sites, about half are on Christian sites. His lecture venues have ranged from synagogues worldwide to Mormon, to the Mormon Tabernacle, to NSA and the Smithsonian, from Chabad in South Africa to megachurches in Brazil and outposts in North, North Korea. Without further ado, we'd like to introduce Dr. Gerald Schroeder. Thank you, Dr. Schroeder, for joining us. Um, as a man of science, 
what turned you on to Judaism and how did the Orthodox world respond to your innovative approach? What, what turned me on? Well, two, a few stages actually. One is uh, we started having kids in of high school, grade school age and high school age and we, they would ask questions. And one day, one day, in fact, they came back and they said, the teacher said that there never were dinosaurs, but we don't believe her. Now, that's not a very good pattern for a school to set up. You know, first of all, the teacher didn't know A from B. I, I presume she could spell the word, but I doubt if she knew anything more than the spelling of the word about it. So, uh, but I figured, it must, I thought it must have to be answers. And in fact, that's what got me starting to put answers down on paper. What got me interested in this was a few years prior to having kids and before I moved to Israel. I met my wife in Israel. We married and have our families here. You're, you're speaking to me from Jerusalem at the moment. Uh, and uh, the, uh, I was at, at, at MIT. All my years were MIT, bachelor's, master's, PhD. And I was on the, I was on the staff, was on the staff at this time. Or the, I don't recall either either going for my advanced degrees, doctor, or on the, on the physics staff at that time. But in any event, the U.S. This goes back to about the time you were probably being born. But the U.S. was had there had been a moratorium in testing of nuclear weapons. My background's my doctorate's halfway half in sciences and half in nuclear physics. Okay, so two totally unrelated fields, but you can do that at universities, at least you can do it at MIT if you want to take enough courses. And the, uh, the Soviets started to test after nuclear weapon test, when I say test, test atomic bombs, you know, we're talking, we're talking atomic bombs. Right. So my background is half in nuclear physics, half in neuroscience. And and of course, we weren't going to let them get away with that. We were going to test also, we being the U.S. at the time. I'm a dual citizen of Israel, the U.S. And so the, I, uh, the, with my, the necessary ingredient missing in the strategic arm limitation talks, SALT, S-A-L-T, strategic arm limitation talks, SALT talks, but there had to be a way of verifying if a, if a country tested a nuclear weapon and they were Members, no, 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 you should do that. But there's no, 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 if you can't prove they made the test. So we had to develop, we being the, the Atomic Energy Commission, and had to develop a system. And the system was primarily if there could be underground tests, and the ground would absorb so much energy, and nothing comes out the top. Of course, it always did come out the top, but that was not really until decades later. But so how could we tell it? And so that was exactly a between nuclear physics and earth sciences. What would the seismic wave and then the shock wave from the bomb, which is always going to be a shock wave, as it passes through the soil, what will it do? Even if it doesn't knock down trees or make any visible, will the microstructure of the soil change? And if that's the case, will there be changes in emanations of certain gases, not from the bomb, that's all contained in the glass ball that when this bomb melts all the rock around it, but gases that are naturally in the soil. And that just fit, I mean, it was as if I had designed my background exactly to get this. And I, and I was, I was, in fact, at that time, I decided after my master's, I wasn't going to go for a doctorate. And I left, I was working at a consulting co company, affiliated with, with MIT. And I get this phone call, come back, we want you to 
do this and we'll give you a doctorate if you do it. What am I going to say? No. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so I started that work. You know, the, the, the long answer to a very short question of yours is the first test that I was present at, the first test of this, of the bomb, of this particular type bomb, we present at was sometime around the Hagin. Now, to show how unaffiliated I was, to this day, I have never bothered looking up the exact date, but I think it was on Rosh Hashanah. You know, that's my guess. Because, and anyway, what happened was I had to, I was there, it's quite an amazing experience. In fact, the Genesis, my first book, Genesis, The Big Bang, the first 20 or so pages are the description of what it's like to be present at a uh, nuclear explosion, even if in, in theory it's underground, which they never are. They always come up with. Right. And I got back to tech, and for some strange reason, I wrote to the rabbi, the Hillel rabbi, whom I made, and now, remember, I have my bachelor's and my master's, okay, and now I'm going for my PhD, see how many, you know, I've been at tech for many, tech is MIT, many years, and maybe I'd, maybe I'd gone to three services in all those years, never, you know, I'm not bragging about it, just, it's, that's just the reality of my life. I wrote him a letter, said, well, this is really something, this is not not philosophical, oh, the world is in date, nothing. He writes me back and says, like he phoned me back and said, why don't you give a, uh, a talk on, Rush, on Yom Kippur? That's why I think the test was on Rosh Hashanah. But suddenly he's telling me to give a talk on Yom Kippur, so I know it's the Hagin. Okay. A lot of warm bodies because Israel has Orthodox, conservative, form, uh, libertarian, whatever you're going to call it, and it's three talks at you know, not. I was one of the warm bodies. And I gave, I said, first I said no, then I said, okay. And he talked about the bomb, zero Judaism, total bomb. They talk because it was all the news in those days. And I'll tell you, if you just walk out of a nuclear explosion and you describe it, it's hard to go wrong in what you're going to say as far as the emotion goes. So the next year, they asked me for another talk, et cetera, et cetera. By the third year, I had to start studying how often they talk about the bomb. So I, uh, I, uh, Started studying Judaism, and that was my downfall. Next thing I was putting into filling, keeping kosher every day. My <laughs> friends watching this, watch out. Be careful, because once you get the brilliance behind the logic of all this stuff that you do, it will draw you in if you're all sensitive to the nature of what goes on inside your mind. Not necessarily your brain, but your mind. It is like, it is like a domino effect. You open yourself to that, because it just... The logic and the beauty, I mean, once you get into a thing, you find some of the rituals, but just the whole beauty of the philosophy it shaped the Western, shaped the whole world. Right. You know, I mean, people, I mean, I don't know the culture that's going on in America at the moment, but let's say previously when America was a little more normal, uh, part of, you can cut this all out. By the way. <laughs> I just got done reading about a 10 page article on woke. And the, and the bizarre nature of woke. So I'm sure you want you want those anyway. So so what what led this to was that I uh, I started studying, and the next thing I do, as I say, I was literally keeping kosher, putting on to fill in, going to you know services, and tr trying to be a nice guy, and uh, not in that order necessarily. That's, that was so that's what got me in. And then what what got me to write the books is now I moved to Israel some strange reason. I never thought I was going to move to Israel, but I did. My my grandmother on my mother's side was Orthodox, and she somehow had that link. I have no idea why. 
I never, I never thought her orthodoxy was silly. You know, I was driving into doing, but no, I just thought she was, a, she was an orthodox Jew. I was a scientist, you know, each person has his something. But somehow that relationship got me next thing on a, a Zim line in those days, two, two wonderful weeks in the water to get to Israel. And uh, that was about looking at you guys on the screen. I was probably about 15 or 20, maybe even 30 years before you were born. But, uh, and so that's, that's, that's so, they, so we get like married kids, kids go to school and they never were dinosaurs. Do we have dinosaurs, et cetera, you know, et cetera. And uh, the lights just went over, something happened. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna fix that. Sorry. Should I keep talking or? Yeah, yeah, keep going, keep going. Okay, the, and, the, and the kids asked questions and they knew they had questions, not just dinosaurs, all kinds of things. And we, at that time we were not, we had lived in Jerusalem, but for some work I moved up we, we, family, Barbara, my wife's Barbara Sofa, by the way, is a, a weekly column in the Jerusalem Post called the uh, Human Spared. And, and, and the kids would ask questions and we happened to live in an area for a few years, north, north of Tel Aviv, south of Haifa, Zichron Yaakov. And there are caves of, the, of some of the earliest evidence of Homo sapiens sapiens in this part of the world. Because remember, we're the link. Israel's the link between Africa and Europe. So when, when the Homo sapiens humans here, Homo sapiens, came out of Africa, they they walked in this land where I'm sitting now here to get. And there are caves there, and we visited the caves. And then the, you know, the questions: what, Adam, Homo sapiens, sapien, hundred thousand years, ten, you know, and all these numbers came up, and I, had, I knew there had to be answers that were scientifically true and biblically true. And they are. Did you receive like did you receive like pushback from the Orthodox community? Because obviously not everybody's open to the idea of like evolution. Well, I've had both both pushback and push in. The late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I didn't know who Jonathan Sachs was when I first met him. And this goes back twenty-five years, it could be, I guess. I was at a Limbu conference in in England. For a while, he would speak there also, his chief rabbi. Then he stopped doing it, I think, because men and, and, and I don't know, but all I know is I'm sitting in, like in the green room before the talk and I have a coffee cake and, and a bunch of people standing around and someone came up to me talking and said, and I, and he said, and I said, my name, Jerry Schroeder. To this day, I, I can't tell you, it's, decade, it's over a decade and a half ago. Out of the corner of my two people went like that, turned around. When I said Jerry Schroeder, just like that. And I wasn't looking, there was talking to the person, is it on the screen now, but at the corner of my sword, and it was, it was Rabbi Sachs. And the next thing I knew, I was talking with them, still not knowing his position, or uh, shows how naive I, I was. He said, and I've never said this publicly, but he, he, said, he said, it changed my life. Wow. Now, I want to make it clear. Rabbi Sachs of Blessed Memory has a life I can't show him like this. The amount that I changed in his life was, you know, immeasurable. But it was enough to say out of this. So, and it was, he'd always seen science as either neutral or an enemy, never as a full pro. That led to him writing a book called The Great Partnership. Right. One wow. of my favorite books. One of my favorite books. Two quotes. Say it again, please. It's one of my favorite books, The Great Partnership. It's Incredible. And that was, you'll notice in the index, he lists all, all of my books. I have not read the whole book, but, but that is, 
that is the great partnership that exists between us and God and understanding and not understanding. There's a whole, you know, that's the closing line. We are soaked. I can't see my head of this, but I'm written, but I look in to make, you know, at the in the uh, in the uh, in the in in British sheet, and that uh, to make that we're part of that deal. Of, look, he asked, he asked, God asked Adam to name the animals, I and mean, right there you got a shit to, you know, uh, guard the garden, etc. It's the great partnership. Any event, I didn't realize that till the last two years later, but then we had a. We not meeting, but when we would meet, it was always a meeting of hugging. He wow. and I. He first. I, I wouldn't be so forward. Wow. Anyway, so, uh, yeah. so, so that's the pull in. But the push out. I'll tell you the push out. I don't know the hierarchy. I'm I'm not into that in the hierarchy of the orthodoxy, etc. So I'm teaching at Asia. I'm getting. I I bike usually to Asia, and uh, I'm about to leave. And one of the head people at Asia at the time, Robert Weinberg was still alive, but it was it wasn't he, someone else. He said, maybe it wasn't, in fact, anyway, said, be prepared to get a call because these parading, they mentioned the name, my memory from names is very bad. Uh, they're going to call you and say not nice things to you. I go home, the phone rings at this time, it's my, my kids are in the military, but they're at home because they're pre-military, so they have to how many years ago it was. I get this phone call. They picked one of my sons picked up the one of our sons picked up the phone, and the person identified him. Now I don't know this stuff, but you know if you go to Orthodox uh, high schools here, you know, they said, no, son. Even if he told me I wouldn't know. So I get the phone. Call. What's the phone call? What you say is true. Stop teaching it, or we'll put you in harm. Wow. They said, they said it's true. The hierarchy of, of, I don't want to say what stream of Judaism it was. It wasn't reform or, I mean, it was orthodox, but I don't say, I'm not saying what clan it was. Uh-huh. Saying is true. Stop teaching it or we'll put you in harem. That's incredible. Don't put me in harem. But that's very sad because if you're fearful, that's only my lack of ignorance. That's, it's called stupidity. It's not ignorance. It's stupid. Ignorance isn't, ignorance isn't a problem. No one everything. You know, you can have Google in your brain and you still won't know everything. That's ignorance. That's not a problem. The problem is, is the answer that in, I, I say it all, always in my, in my, not always, very, almost always in my classes, I, I say the most important teaching in the entire is in Brachot. It's in the first 10 pages of Brachot. Teach your tongue to say, I don't know. Teach your tongue to say, I don't know. And this person that called me, I could tell this conversation, he, he couldn't even tell if it was true or not. He just assumed that I wasn't lying when he threatened me with heroin. But there's so many people that argue against the Bible, scientists that argue against the Bible, and they can't even read the Bible except in mistranslation. And, and on the other side, there are theologians that have no idea what equals MC squared once. I had one, one person say, oh, I, I thought it was a, a typo to say two. You know, it's MC squared with the square sign. But I thought you meant two. So, and, and they'll argue against, so it's some, against science. So it's not, it's not only the theologians that don't know science, but haven't learned to keep their tongues to say, I don't know. But the scientists have the problem also. The oh. scientists have the problem also. Uh, 
and I'm going to give an example uh, with naming names, okay, of a scientist because he's a wonderful human being. Unfortunately, about eight or nine years ago, he died of cancer. Mm -hmm. Steve, I'm at MIT, up the river, up the Charles River is Harvard. You know, they're quite, Harvard and MIT are quite close together. You, you, you can row from one to the other if you want to avoid the traffic. And Stephen Jay Gould was a wonderful human being. And I've spent time speaking with him. He's a really good human being. He's dead now, but I mean, he wasn't. Right. And he loved the Bible. He loved the Bible as literature. He thought it was wonderful. But he thought it was literature, a myth. And he said, I can prove it. And what's sad is I only found this in his writings after he, had, he, was, he, he was dead. So I couldn't couldn't. He said, I can prove to you that it's wrong. Look at the animals listed on day number, day number uh, five, four. Wait, I'm going to get a text out suddenly. I can't remember. I haven't talked about this in a while. Uh, as soon as I can find my permission. He said, look at that. Sorry, we can cut it out. He's so cute. Look at the animals, look at the animals listed. On, on, day number, on day number five, they only appear on day number six. And what were the animals? There's a whole bunch of animals. And then he said, and birds. Stephen Jay Gould is a person who works with fossils, paleontology. He knew the fossil record inside and out. And he knew that the animals listed on day number five, or mostly day five animals, but then there's also birds listed on day five, and birds do not appear until day six in the fossil record. So if God wrote the Bible, how could there be birds on day number five? But of course, birds are only on day number five in Stephen Jay Gould's English translation. See, that's what amazes me. A man as is a full professor and a brilliant human being would have the foolishness to criticize a text that he couldn't even read. Birds don't appear in day number five. The word is oaf. Now, oaf and modern Hebrew, I'm lucky, lucky he didn't say chickens, but he didn't know enough Hebrew to know that oaf today means chicken. But oaf biblically is any animal that flies. Oaf is a creature that flies. So consistently in my classes, I ask the kids, you know, what would be the logic of the first types of animals that fly? Sometimes they say pterodactyl. I say, think more normally. The first animals be fly were very simple. So what would they be? Insects. Hmm. Insects map exactly onto, that's what's so beautiful about the Torah. A human wouldn't know that, as Gould didn't know it, and that's his business. But insects map exactly onto the time frame of day five wow. and not day six. And the text doesn't say bird, it says oaf. The general category of flight enters the fossil record on the animals and the time span of day, of day five. And, but Stephen didn't know that. I suppose it now, I'm sure, I'm sure. But he, you know, so, so, and what's sad is that these wonderful people, scientists who criticize the Bible and they can't even read it. I mean, because you're reading in translation, you're not reading it. Like you, right. Moses again calls it a sheer poem. Anyone that knows poetry, I mean, think of Shakespeare in Italian, I'm not Italian, but yeah, even Italian or in Hebrew. It's kind of lost something from the original. Okay, anyway. Yeah. So is have a little bit of science, a little bit of Torah, then you can find a, a shiluve, a integration 
face to conflict. Very well. Beautiful. Sure. Beautiful. Very nice. And actually, so I want to talk about the your book, Genesis of the Big Bang, was the first like credible scientific support of the Torah that I read as a teenager. And I highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't read it. Um, can you explain to our audience, uh, what is the significance of the discovery of the Big Bang in light of the commonly held view of the scientific community that preceded it? Obviously, before that, it, they believe in the eternal universe. Yeah, unchanging eternal. Einstein believes that. The, the Einstein, that's each, the famous Einstein. He said, it's the biggest blunder of my professional life. Einstein in, 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 reveals, he discovers the laws of relativity, uses them to already, uh, uses them for writing a, 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 uh, a cosmological co uh, equation that would describe the development of the universe. And it didn't make sense. It showed his, his mathematics showed the universe was either expanding or contracting, depending on the magnitude of whichever constants he had in it. And he said, that's ridiculous. Everyone knows the fixed stars. And he changed, you must be aware of this, he changed his, he changed his equation. He put in a fudge factor to balance the expansion number to make it zero. You know, one minus one equals zero. And he put that in. And later he said in his famous letter to Max Born, the biggest blunder of my professional life. He could have, predict, he could have predicted the creation of the universe on pure theoretical grounds. Eventually it was, it was proven by Hubble and others and uh, by, uh, that, by observation that there's a, an expansion. But the, the discovery of the Big Bang, which is a term, by the way, that was, was coined in, in, in uh, derision. Fred Hoyle, who was in absolute certain that the universe is eternal, and he was being interviewed in 19... Which isn't the Dark Ages. This is way under 100 years ago. And it was on the BBC, and the interviewer on the BBC, to put some spice into the discussion, decided he's going to ask Hoyle a loaded question. He said, well, Professor Hoyle, knowing Hoyle thought the universe was eternal, what do you think about all these colleagues who say there was a creation? He said, yeah, they think there was some kind of big bang. He, the, term, the press picked it up. He, he coined that term in derision. Oh, there's a big bang. Well, there was a big bang. It didn't go bang, but it was big. You know, it was a big creation. Later, he becomes an over-the-top believer over by, by his discovery of how the elements are made in the stars. I mean, so at the end, F, but... The, the discovery of the creation of the universe, I say it this way, it's the discovery of the creation of the universe, the Big Bang is the best news for God since Moses came down from Sinai. The only thing that can that is this reestablishing the state of Israel. Nothing else. It is the best news for God since Moses. I mean, there was a creation to the universe. You know that means? There was a beginning. It doesn't that you had to have a beginner, but it does prove and that's what's important. It does prove that you have to have an, a, a, some force, forces or water that predate the existence of time as we know it and space and matter and physicality that bring this into being. I always say as we know it because to say before time, how can you say before time if there's no, you know, if that's about time. So it's time as we know it. And it may be a video that you're not aware of, but there's a video called Proof of God in Five Minutes. I've seen it. It has way over three million views. It's probably close. Web-wide, someone searched almost five million views with people hijacking it using different terms. 
But I urge your listeners, I'm the talking head. The graphics are phenomenal. I have nothing to do with the graphics. Uses only data from NASA, National Space Authority, only data from NASA. And it shows that NASA's description of the forces that created the universe and how the universe is created are exactly the Jewish tradition that goes back at least 2000 to Rav Tarkuma and 800 years to the Ramban. Exactly, it's an exact unmatch to how our tradition said the universe is created from nothing and started as a minuscule point and expanded out. And, and all those data are pure NASA data until the last 30 seconds of the video. And I say, notice that that happens to be the biblical directives. So I urge, urge, if I'm allowed to, we can cut this. Proof of God in five minutes, Jerry Schroeder. And uh, uh, so, thanks, good news for God. There was a creation to the universe. What people don't understand is that the word term Big Bang does not say what made the Big Bang go bang. It is only a secular, neutral way of saying creation. Because creation, God forbid, sounds like a creator. So uh, that's the best thing is saying, you know, a person that's against the creator. But he's stuck with the fact that there was a creation to our. Right. It was. Very nice. Very nice. To ask you um, if the universe is indeed 13.8 billion years old, how do we reconcile that with the six days of creation according to Genesis? And since Earth time is measured by 24 hour cycles around the sun, what do we make about the days preceding the fourth day? Is this potential contradiction something that we can solve with Einstein's theory of relativity? And on a, and a, and on a semi-related note, where did dinosaurs fit into this picture? Okay. <laughs> if, you, if you saw my PowerPoint, that's the last question that always shows up. Well, what about dinosaurs? Always. You can answer, you can answer everything in the world, but what about dinosaurs? <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, for that, I am totally beholden to Ramban, Nachmanides, and to Rashi. <laughs> you know, we're going to say, why not? So, first of all, the days are 24 hours each, all of them. How do I know that? I don't know it, except the text says, Yom, Yom, Yom. You know, every day, Yom Achad, Yom Sheni, Yom Sheni. It's always Yom, okay? And the Ramban, and Rashi says, it's a Rashi, as simple as Rashi. It says, Yom, Kaf, Dalet, day 24 hours for all of them. So whether there's a sun or not a sun, it doesn't matter. There's still 24 hours. That's the, because the text uses the term day, yom, right? yom yom So the sun's not mentioned until later. So the sun might have been around, but not mentioned, but let's put that aside. So the Rashi tells us all the day, every yom means day. It's easiest Rashi and all, find an easier Rashi. And then the Ramban comes along, the Ramban, Nachmanides, with the name Ram, the Ramban, comes along and says, not only are they 24 hours each, like the six days of our work week. And that's interesting because the student said, well, maybe the days are 24 hours, but maybe the hours are different. One of the students in my class, I remember, as if he was looking over the Ramban, as if, as if Ramban was looking over his shoulder. And I said, I just quoted the Ramban. Then I would quote the Ramban. That's like the six days of our work week. So we're locked in. The six days of Genesis are 24 hours each. 24 hours each. But here's the, here's, here's the end. I'm the lucky, I'm the, I don't want to say lucky any longer because I was once on, on, on 
actually on Christian television, Pat Robertson. He said, you weren't lucky. You were blessed. It's an important part of me for digressing totally. But a blessing isn't, oh, boy, I'm blessed. Blessing's a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't get it. You just got it. Okay? So I don't, I don't just say I'm lucky, but I'll say I was lucky. But anyway, I was fortunate that I had both the science and the Bible. So, so the Ramban tells us, well, actually, yes, and then he answers, why does the text say we hear the vocal yom echad? Why does the text, why does the Bible write there is evening day, one day or day one? It doesn't say day two, it says yom sheni, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, give me a first day. So why does it say day one? And he makes the most phenomenal statement. The Torah did not write a first day on the first day because there had not yet been a second day. And everyone knows that's the case. The first world war was not the first world war till the second world war came along. Right. And I give a personal example. I fought the first Lebanese war. None of my, none, not, not I, not my friends, nor my four buddies that didn't come back from the first Lebanese war didn't say we're fighting in the first Lebanese war. Why not? Because there wasn't yet a second Lebanese war. Now I have to say my kids and I talk the first Lebanese war. The Torah writes day one because the Torah is seeing time for the six days of Genesis from the beginning looking forward. That's the whole key, except it has no significance except the fact that we're an expanding universe. And among several sources, but the oldest one is the Rav Tanchuma on Parshat Savwe point, wording says, he brings out the whole discussion of the universe starting a tiny, a tiny point, expanding out. The only significance of the Ramban telling us, and he, then he says the universe started as a point not bigger than a grain of mustard. I bring the, the sources down in my book. Not bigger than a grain of mustard. There was nothing. And then there was something that's very interesting. The physics today and these theories do not have a singularity at the beginning. A singularity is a point of zero space and infinite everything else, infinite temperature, not because Anything in zero space has to become infinite. Any number, as tiny as it is, divided by zero, becomes infinite. And all the theories, although people casually say singularity, don't really mean a singularity. They mean a tiny, tiny, tiny space, finite, which is exactly what the Ramban says, not bigger than a grain of mustard. Uh, uh, like the black, not not bigger than the black of your eye, and it expands out, and expands out, and that's that's the. So we've always held by an expanding universe, and I presume the Ram, the Ramban knew that also. But once you have an expanding universe, and you're seeing time, the Bible's point of view. This is not human point. It's the Torah looking forward. Nowhere in the entire Tanakh is the passage of time said he edivi voker. There's evening, morning, and time. Evening. Is, is mentions of evenings and morning elsewhere, but never that couplet. He had a evoker, there's evening, morning. It is unique to Genesis chapter one. The description of time in Genesis chapter one is unique. And it's from the beginning looking forward. How do you know that? The Ramban told us, day one, not a first day. There wasn't a second day. So we're looking, so the Torah, from not a human point of view, from the Bible's point of view, sees the Torah from the beginning looking forward. We look back, this, and it's the, from this huge universe that we live in, and we look back with our telescopes, et cetera, to see information from depth. And, and, and thanks to Hubble and uh, Henrietta Leavitt, whose name you never have heard, but look her up. There's no, Hubble tele there's no Hubble telescope 
in the sky, except for Henrietta Leavitt. And he put her up for a Nobel Prize and she died of cancer. She got it. Otherwise, there'd be a Leavitt, Henrietta Leavitt, Hubble telescope, and she died of cancer before she can get the Nobel Prize. All of, her, all of his measurements are based on her insight, all of them. So we see light coming from deep space, and we measure, when it gets to us, how much the wavelength has stretched, because that light has to swim through space to get to us. But as it's coming to us from the deep space where the galaxy is far away, space is stretching, which no one understands what that means, but space is stretching. And, and the light wave is stretched out. So we measure how much the light wave is stretched out from that galaxy and from that galaxy and from that galaxy. And, and it turns out when you unstretch the waves, it takes 14 billion years of travel to unstretch the waves. So that's how the age of the universe, the 13.8 billion is, is gotten with states. So we live in a huge universe right now, right, huge. And those measurements are thousands of measurements do this, not doubling, obviously thousands. So we live in the universe and we look back, we, go, we look back in time, Universe isn't getting bigger. You know, it's mathematically, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not physically, big, but mathematically, as we look back in time, universe gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller back to day one. Now we'll never know the size of the universe at its creation. That we'll never know. It's because the universe becomes opaque. And for many reasons I'm not going to get into. Or the plasma and this other the person said. Persons that know this will not, you know, the listening will understand that they're into this stuff. Otherwise, it's, it's okay. Which means you can't get information through it. But the Ramban tells us something amazing. He says, Hasman Nivra, creation, Hasman Nivra, time is created. And then he makes this magnificent nuance, which allowed me to make the calculation. He says, Aval, Mishi, Yesh, Yifos, Bosman. You can look at the Ramban, you'll find it on his. Commentary on Genesis chapter one, verses one, two. Mishia yesh it man. When you finally have yesh matter, time grabs a hold. So he differentiates Hasman Nivra, time is created at the creation. However, Mishia yesh, when you finally have matter, yesh, time grabs a hold. Why he understood that, I have no idea what he's what he was thinking. But the fact that he has a, had his student, Isaac of Acker, that made a calculation of a 15 billion year old universe makes me think that the Ramban knew something. I don't like to say Kabbalah because people think, you know, crazy Kabbalah, you know, I mean, Kabbalah's gotten out the best of names lately. <laughs> what's the first yes you have? In other words, what's the first piece of matter that identifies matter? It's called a proton. If I say and I have an atom with one proton, I'm saying I have hydrogen. If I say I have an atom with six protons, I'm saying I have carbon. Eight protons, oxygen. 92 protons, probably it's uranium. In any event. That proton identifies the matter. That's the first yesh. Mishi yesh. So time grabs a hold at that point. Before that time, time passed, but nothing was recording it because the energies were so high that nothing stable could exist. Anything that formed was smattered apart. And, and light beams do not record time. At the speed of light, time doesn't pass. It passes rust. We know light travels in the sun. Takes eight minutes and 15 seconds. But if you flew on a, on a photon from the sun to the earth at the speed of light, your clock wouldn't even go tick or talk. Zero. Fit in here. Clock begins here at the time the universe is like this, okay? And we're out here with the universe like this. What would happen if I had to squeeze this back? And what's amazing 
it's one on one. One on one. If I cut as I go back in time and make the universe smaller and smaller, the passage of time becomes more and more compressed, more and more compressed. The way I describe it now, and I only missionary, I've forgotten that I always did it, but the way I do it, had done it for decades and forgotten. I just came upon my papers again a month or two ago. Supposing I'm supposing I'm here at the beginning. Near the, with the first, at the beginning of the, of the Bible clock at the proton. The universe is this big. And I send, I'm going to send out a point every second, a, a, a bit, beep, a laser, beep, beep, beep. So every, his first beep goes out and then it, it's traveling. It's, just, you know, it's a beep of light, it's a burst of light. It's not, a, I'm not talking about sound, I'm talking about, you know, a laser, but I just say beep. And then a second and then a third, they're separate. But now as they travel, in the universe for all these billions of years, what's the universe doing? It's expanding. So those beep, beep, beeps that were one second apart now become further and further apart because the time between them oh, wow. is become more and more and more. And it's, it's, it's such a graphic way of seeing it. And by the time you get to us, I can't get it on the screen, but it's, you know, it's like, it's, it's stretched out by, the average, if you go to my the papers, you'll see them. The average number is 900 billion. It's a, it's a moderate, it's a number that comes from the, the equations, which we're not going to get into the, the moment. But that, that means the ratio between our perception of time. Back here, the person said, if on each of those beeps of light, you can imprint information. That's how we're doing right now. Electromagnetic radiation is allowing us to do the zoom, you know, imprint it. And if it says on each one, I'm sending you a beep every second, but by the time you get here, so it wouldn't be every second. No, it's, it's billions, it's gazillions of years or whatever it is between them. It's 900 billion seconds between them. Not every second, it's 900 billion seconds. That's the normal, I say that number, you have to go to the papers at h.com or wherever, or my website. Anyway, the 900 billion is, turns out to be, and it's all, and it's not relativity. Am I clear? It's astronomy, pure astronomy. But relativity allows this to be the case. That's you divide 14 billion years by 900 billion, you get the six days. I tell you, when I first did the calculation, I had no idea it was going to come out. And that number came out of the equation. First, I got scared as can be, and I ran to Barbara. I said, my wife Barbara, I can't believe this. The six days are exactly what Chazal said. They are 24 hours each because that is the expansion factor of the universe. And when I take that expansion factor out, going back, 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 back in time, the 14 billion years become the six days. It's, uh, it's, it's easy to find exactly. Anyway, I've, I've taken up all your time, but okay. That's so then the, the other question was um, about the dinosaurs, where do they fit in, which is the fun. Oh, so, the, so now you've got plenty of the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs, remember on phase five, you got these tiny neem gadolim, the one of the animals, and so it's the big debate, the tiny neem gadolim. It's the only animal, the only anything that has a size descriptor. Nothing else, big, little, small, smart, dumb, but only the tiny neem get this tiny neem gadolim. So there's all kinds of understanding. King James called them whales, okay? King James called the whales because they're among aquatic animals, this is there. But the irony is we know what tiny neem, we know what, well, first I'm going to do this from the Torah's point, then from the eight, then from the time of where they fit in. Yeah. But what are the tiny, what, what does tiny mean? Well, let's see, Moses at the burning bush, God says to Moses, throw down a stick, I'll send you back, he throws a stick 
down it becomes a snake, right? A nachash. The Hebrew is important here, right? Become everyone knows it means it throws a stick, it becomes a nachash. Goes back to Pharaoh, meets up with his brother Aaron. They confront Pharaoh. Now, actually, Aaron has the stick. He throws it down. Aaron says, "Show me a trick." He throws down the stick, and it becomes a tanin. Yeah, becomes a tanin. Now we know it's the same phenomena because if, if it weren't if it weren't the same as there, then Moses would have said, "What are you giving me a a, a whale?" And he's King James. What are you giving me a whale for? I wanted to, you know, get out of here already. You know, it would have really impressed Pharaoh. So we know that the Nachash and the Tanin are related because the stick becomes a Tanin. There's no reaction by Moses saying, I wanted a Nachash and he gave me a Tanin. So they have to be related. So what do we know about Nachash? What do know about Tanin? No, excuse me. It becomes a... Have, yeah, it becomes a Tanin, right? It becomes a Tanin in front of Pharaoh. So the two means to be, to be together, that the tanin has to be, we know what nachash is, it's a snake. So, so tanin must be a general category, which, which includes snakes, because reptile. it, hmm? Like a reptile. Yeah. Reptile, the big reptiles. Very interesting. Very interesting. Oh, but just one thing, imagine if, imagine had, this is what's so amazing. If the Hebrew first translation had been faithful, the Arab, first Aramaic, or the, the Septuagint, which went into Greek, right? If the Septuagint had been faithful to the Hebrew, and it was all by rabbis, but remember, they were trying to make the Bible compatible with Greek thought, so that you know there are, there are nuances. But how do you say big reptiles in Greek? Everybody knows the word. You know, Saurus. Hmm. Oh, or terrible, Saurus means reptile. Can you imagine had they translated Tanin Gedolin, the Hebrew, because it's the Greek translation of Tuesday, it, there are two words for big. It didn't have to be Dinos, I'm picking the one that I want. They would have had Dinosaurus, and there'd be no problem. <laughs> That's really cool. So I want to switch gears here to uh, somebody who, a contemporary of yours, who passed away, uh, Dr. Anthony Flew. At one point, he had the most published works on the subject of atheism. Once a, fear, a fierce opponent of the belief in God, he said the following. I'm going to read his statement. I now believe there is a God. I now think it, the evidence, does point to a creative intelligence almost entirely because of the DNA investigations. What I think the DNA material has done is that it has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinary diverse elements to work together. Can you explain why this discovery of DNA was so instrumental in convincing this famous atheist that God exists? Yeah, well, first of all, you do realize that that's my work. That, yes, of course. That discussion in front of me. It's on, it's on a wonderful video by a man named Roy Varghese, a wonderful human. He's a, an Asian Indian who lives in Dallas, Texas, high tech. He, he brought flute together and me and several other people. I was primarily in that, as, as science discovered God, but it's worth looking up as science discovered God, Roy Varghese, he put all the funding for it, et cetera. And, and first of all, Fluo, Anthony Flew, again, it's amazing because he's a wonderful human being, very, very honest, he said, I have, he says, I follow the school of Socrates. I go to where the truth leads me, which is pretty brave for a person who has spent his entire life 
you know, the first 50 or 60 years of his life saying there's no God. And uh, what, what led him to understand that is that first of all, that the universe is fun. And that the complexity that you, the numbers always show that you can't get this by chance. Okay, so maybe there's an infinite of universes, whatever. But the specific, specificity, you know, the exactness of, of, the, of the nature in which the DNA records information, what you so extraordinary. We always say DNA is amazing. When you study it, you don't, you realize you didn't even have a clue as to the nature of the exactness in which the information is presented and how it's read. You know, it doesn't, you know, you give me a book in Russian, it doesn't look really good. I can't read, you know, I couldn't read it at all. But so it's not just the information on the DNA, but it's how it's read as also how it's read. And it's the complexity of story that he realized that it's more, it's, it is overwhelmingly unlikely that it could have happened by chance, even if there are thousands of, of galaxies or thousands of universes. And that's why the secular voice of science in this world called Scientific American says that the only way that you can explain the exactness of the laws of nature, including DNA, how fortunate, is if there, if there are an infinite number of universes or near infinite number, not of, not of galaxies, of universes. And each universe will have its own set of laws and each universe will, will try to make this. And if you have a near infinite number, one's gonna be a winner. You know, that's it, roll the dice, roll the dice. And that's the only, that's the answer. That, that Scientific American goes, which if you don't, if you're not familiar with it, Scientific American is the most widely read science journal worldwide, probably by a factor of 10, because it's not peer-reviewed. Peer-reviewed takes money. Not that when I peer-review an article, I can get paid for it, but it takes time to send it out, being, you know, other, before it, the, your peers read it and say it's garbage or it's good. But Scientific American is not peer-reviewed. The only person who has to decide whether it goes in or not is the editor. If the editor wants to have a certain spin on the data, that spin goes in and people and people around the world read it because it comes out in multiple languages. So, so and even that journalist said that the only way you can explain the explain the, the exactness of the laws of nature and the exactness of where they fall together to allow life to happen is an infinite number of universes for which there are no data whatsoever. Right. Then you read the problem of how do you get in, and you're still stuck with exactly the problem that, that we deal with that I deal with in the proof of God in five minutes. But why is there existence? And then how do you get and how do you get a creation of the universe anyway? You know, you still need the laws of nature. Right. That's the key. And and so, and that's that book. I that's why you you there's a book called uh Universe of Nothing by Krauss, he's a Jewish man. Uh, who ends up with the most and I said, purely stupid conclusion that this shows that there's no God. He bypasses the problem that these laws of nature are required. And he was once asked about the laws of nature. Oh, there's nitpickers always trying to find a reason. In other words, he accepts the fact of, that the laws of nature, the whole answer is the laws of nature. Because once you have the laws of nature, you can do lots of things. Like once you have a ball of clay, you can make all types of sculptures. 
So once you have these laws of nature that can bring a universe into being from nothing physical, that was one mistake I made. I said it brings the universe in from nothing, but it's a universe from nothing physical. That's the key. And that's an error in his title of his book also, because wow. the, a virtual world and the physics in his book, Krauss's book, is 100%. It's the last 10 pages. And then he has an afterward by Dawkins or Simmons with this most stupid conclusion that this proves there's no God. In fact, it proves there is a God, that the laws of nature are, are and that's what, that's what, that's what impressed Blue. And, and just, you know, okay, I know you'd like to stop. Oh. And when first wonderful thing happened, I didn't even know that it became public. We, we did this interview in, at NYU, uh, Varghese, this wonderful human from uh, I got it all together. I come back. This, this time goes by. The videos he put together. Flu makes his announcement. I didn't know that. Next thing you know, I, I go into work. People are patting me on the back. I get into Asian Torah. Work me. What'd you do? How'd you do it? It turned out that the that it was such a big news that the that one of the one of the carriers lists the five most important news items of the day. And the world is burning. And what was one of the five most important? Anthony Flew recounted his atheism. This is not a Jewish, not a Jewish news. It's one of like, it's not like, I don't know which one it was, uh, but anyway, it was one of the major. Ah, I thought it's got, got to work on time. The same way. So, so it, it just shows. Well, anyway, if you look at the data, I just said at the beginning about when I started studying the, from the Jewish point of view. The next thing was putting a talus, you know, talus to fill in kosher. If at this point, once you study the science from depth, it took this man, but it took Fred Hoyle. Look at Fred Hoyle, the man to said, Big Bang, become believer. Flew from a philosophical point of view, right? became, a, became a believer. And the New, oh, yeah, and the New York Times on its front page Sunday edition had a whole article about this. They mentioned me by name nine times. And usually I had the feeling that they, they thought I this poor man, I tricked him or something. Anyway, so that's dinosaurs and then he flew. Wow. So, you know, actually, it leads me to, I don't know if you have more time, a little bit more time, but I wanted to get into, because uh, you mentioned Richard Dawkins. He also, um, I, I have a quote from him where he says um, about DNA, because he basically said that, uh, you know, intelligent design might turn out to be the answer to some issues in genetics or in evolution. He said the following, well, if it would come about in the following way, it could come, it could be that at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved, probably by some kind of Darwinian means, probably to a very high level of technology, and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this planet. Now, um, now there is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the details of of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. He then continues to say that it's more likely to be extraterrestrials who created us rather than God. But the question also remains, who created them? And yeah. and I find that atheists tend to point to, you know, they point to this conundrum of, you know, well, who created, who or what created God? And they seem to be rejecting the same version of God that we reject as the Torah, you know, obviously tells us that God is transcendent. He created time, he created space and matter. So he's not bound by it. He's completely separate, Kadosh, right? So with that said, um, why do you think scientists have such a simplistic view of like the Jewish definition of God? 
Let me just turn the light on here. It's getting so dark here. You know, you're time sure. at sunset here. Right? Hang on a sec. No, no problem. Sorry. Well, give me, phrase your question in a shorter way so I can. Yeah, so what I, what I want to understand is that they, I feel like the, the atheists in, in the scientific community, they're kind of always, you know, they bring it back to this question about God. It's impossible that God would exist, but they come up with all these other scenarios that are just almost as, you know, crazy to think about. Um, why is it that, why do you think they have such a simplistic view of God, do you, do you believe maybe it's like the... Why do they have a hard time with it? Why do they have a hard time with the concept of God? Where it can... Uh, well, just let me just do one thing on the once you quoted by, by, uh, by an ancient civilization. That's, you know, Francis Crick, one of the, one of the Nobel Prize winners for the, for the shape of DNA, uh, said it might be life was, was seeded here by an ancient civilization. So that, that's with Dawkins, it's not something new. But why do they have trouble with God? Well, it makes certain kinds of obligations, I guess. Let's say that's, it doesn't, let's say, they're not, let's say they're not Jewish, so they're not worried about Kashrut and Shabbos and stuff like that. Uh, they, a scientist might say, well, if there's a God entering into the situation, so how can I be sure that my equations are any good? Because maybe God was changing them tomorrow, you know, that they, they won't... Uh, the laws of nature might be changed, so I can't even do scientific work because, I mean, that would, I don't, I don't know. I, I, what, what could be the reason? I mean, I, I hear people tell me that the reason is that it's, the, uh, they don't want to be bound by this morality and all this stuff, but there are a lot of moral atheists, you know, and not everyone is running around having wild whatever you have, you know, I mean, there, there are more, there are, but, but, and they, but they do accept the fact that there is, is a morality, which is interesting. So why, if the world is just stopped, you know, why have, who cares about morality? Uh, I guess my answer is teach your tongue to say, I don't know. I have no, I don't I really don't have a good answer. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm not convinced that they don't want to be bound by, by laws of the Bible, but it might be that they don't, they don't want the seven Noahide commandments. Okay. Okay. So I, I do want to get into um, one question about evolution um, that, you know, there's no, there's no, as far as I know, there's no evidence of spontaneous generation in one complex life form from inanimate matter. Um, so how do you, how do we explain, you know, like if we're going to subscribe to the idea of evolution happening in the Torah, um, how would such a thing or what evidence do we have that, that this concept is even possible and, you know, is it a proven fact? Well, I would say, I would not use the word evolution, I call it development. Evolution becomes a, no, is a loaded term. Evolution, evolution, as it's been described to me by, I always say, of course, there was four persons who work in the field, okay? Not at the same time, but the four that I mentioned over the decades, they all said the same, essentially the same thing. Evolution is a two-stage process. Random mutations in the sex line change the nature of the progeny that are being born. And some will be born like cheetahs, some will be born fast and some will be born slower, some smarter, some dumber, some stronger, some weaker. And it's pretty clear that the stronger, smarter, faster ones are going to get more food for the young than the dumb, slow, you know, 
and then and so the second stage would be that the ones that are more fit will have more children and therefore always be coming in that direction which is important to see the difference in this description that I was just I just said the first stage is and always it was said this way to me but my whole my whole sampling is, is for scientists but they're so identical random mutations in the in the sex line the key word there is random the second stage of survival is not random at all. Strong lions eat weak lions. That's why lions, that's just what lions do. Guilty of anything, that's what lions do. Strong lions eat weak lions. Okay, so that's logical. That's not random. But the, you would say, but what made this set of lions be stronger than the other one, being born stronger, is that they, uh, they had mutation to the gene that made them stronger. But the question is, comes back to the fact that are these mutations random or not? And if you look at the flow of uh, Simon Conway Warris has a wonderful book about, the, about, about this development. Simon Conway Warris is probably the most important living paleontologist today. He's the person that discovered the nature of the Cambrian explosion of life when all the phyla appear suddenly out of the blue. Okay, science calls it the big bang of animal evolution. And he is the paleontologist that first, with a colleague, discovered the uh, discovered the nature of the fossils. The fossils were known, but it wasn't understood. And he says he's convinced. But he, uses, he says something like this in the introduction: If you are a creationist or some of that that sort, I, I suggest you put the book, my book, back on the shelf. Evolution is true; it's the way of the world. But that evolution acts completely freely that it is guided by a set of rules that determine what type of mutations can take place. And even the late Stephen Jay Gould in his writing said the same thing, that to him, and he's, a, he's when we talk about this, sees the Bible as, as literature, but not necessarily divine. He said that there seems to be something in nature that challenges and directs the flow of, of, of life. And that's the same thing that we're saying here, that the laws of nature do not seem to be that the react, the flow is random, as as Conway Morris said that the you have this vast forest of possibilities, and ninety nine point nine 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 percent of those possibilities are lethal or useless, and there's one or two minuscule, you know, zero point zero 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 one percent of the possible mutations would give you a benefit. And as he calls it, that nature has this way of discovering the path through the forest that will lead you, obviously not, lead you to, uh, to the mutations that, that are beneficial. And he says, it's, he says, that's what he says. He says, even the, so he differentiates between random evolution and guided evolution. So if we can use the word evolution, that's why I don't use the word evolution. I use the word development. Life developed from the simple to the complex, 100%. The Torah says it day by day. You see, the, the, was the development random? No. Can you prove that it was random? No. So if there are, so then the argument comes back. There are two points I'd like to make. Just, just a bit of your time. Two points in fact. That uh, if it's random, if it's random, if it's random, so if God is so clever, if God is so clever, so why... Why are there, are, I'm just going to put out a slide I want to show them. 
that God is so clever. So why is this the case? Does this show up on, can you see that picture on the, yeah. on the, it's technology review, that's the MIT uh, uh, magazine. Uh, Caltech has, you know, every university has its own magazine. So MIT is, is technology review. Life is like the product of a grand designer. So here's God designing people. Well, what do you think all these things on the bottom are? Failed, failed designs. Mm. Does that mean that there really isn't a God as a designer? Why are they, you know, the dinosaurs have got such a, such a so, so magnificent. So why are these failed designs? What about the dinosaurs? Would, would it ever be the case that, the, that God who designs the world would, would have, you call it an error, and have to press the reset button? And of course, so for that, I don't look at nature. I want to know the nature. That's why I wrote the book, God According to God. What does the Bible tell me about God? Well, does God ever press the reset button? You bet him. When? We just got done reading about it a week or two ago. People are living to 900 years. Forget whether people could live to 900 years. It's an irrelevant question. Okay? It's in the text. People are living to 900 years. Oh. Lousy idea. Simple as that. And God admits it. The Hamdi. God says, the Hamdi. I regret. Right. What are your translation you can find that doesn't say regret? The regret having made. God has regrets. Well, according to the Bible, God has regrets. Maybe more than God in the Bible, but I'll go with the Bible. God says, Nechamti, several places. Uh -huh. This is the reset button, brings on the flood. Forget even if there was a flood or not. I, we have many discussions. I'm going to get into that. I'm getting the fact that the Torah includes this to show you that there can be failed designs, and God presses the reset button, and lifespans drop, and lifespans drop from, just looking for a slide of my son, Joshi, now he's a world class. Uh, back search and he's brought, he searched, he's called all around. So, name him, Joshi I'm just looking for them. Oh, yeah, here, he's right here. It's right here. This is, these are, these are the data from the text. I don't know how clear it is, but these are death ages. Birthing ages follow the same. These are from Adam to Noah, people living to 900 years. Never, ever in this discussion worry about people can live to 900 years. The key is, the text brings them down. The Bible brings them. Flood now dropped. Life spans dropped to 100, 120 numbers we know today. Right. People were a loser. And God says, Nahamti redirects the world. And suddenly you got 90 year old people. That seems to work a bit. Not, well, so far, we haven't reached the number of the ages that, you know, the number of years that went by. So the fact that the God had to destroy the dinosaurs is completely in accord with. The flood. So this idea of failed designs, this idea of failed designs is 100% biblical. 100%. These are failed design. Here's the dinosaurs right here. Okay. The dinosaurs appear about 300, or whatever, the numbers are out of in my head, in the order of between about, I think about 250, 200 or so, 300 million years ago. I apologize, the number's not right in my head at the moment. They coexist finally, then, then they, they coexist actually with mammals for a while. And then about 65 million years ago, a force from outer space destroys the dinosaur. Meteor, the data are very strong because the level of, at the, at the, at the level underground, you know, the deeper you dig in, the older, you know, the far back in history you're going. 
at the level of about 65 million years ago worldwide. There's a level of destruction. Under than that, lower than that, there are big animals and little animals. Above that level of destruction, about 60, there are only little animals. All the big animals are gone. And then including the dinosaurs. Wow. You know, so made it through. And the and the but the big dinosaurs. So that was a force from outer space. The nature of the debris in there, and especially a, uh, iridium, a very rare earth on, on the earth, but enriched in certain meteorites. If you calculate the amount of iridium in this, in this like an onion, this layer 65 million years ago, how much it would take a meteor about 10 kilometers in diameter, exploding somewhere above the Yucatan it's thought to be now. From, from the, and the earth must have rung like a bell you know, for the boom, this boom, and a, a nuke, essentially a nuclear a winter for six months, because we know how long dust remains in the atmosphere. About six months, there'd be no sunlight. Oh, wow. No. So, so temperatures dropped, no big animals. It's very similar to the data that we just found in stone. This made this news in the States also. The, the 20, 23 universities participated in this work. They used the Torah for where they thought Saddam was. And they start digging in there and they find a destruction layer. Forget the Torah. Forget that. And what they find is a layer of ash. They find shards of clay that are glass on one side, which detects this layer. The layer happens to date back to the time of Abraham, by the way. It's very interesting, the dating. But the only reason digging there is from the Torah, but they put it's reported, it's either science or nature in the two leading journals. It's orthodoxy saying, I have to admit, the description of this function is very much like what you have in the Bible, which must have choked in their throat to have to say that, but they're honest people. But the digging there is because the Torah said to dig there. You know, we're stuck. Destruction, and what the, I think of them, there's many accounts on the web now, it's easy to find out the the, and it's a meteor burst, explodes, and what do you get? Stones from the sky, exactly the description of the Bible. Stones of fire fall from the sky, the salt, it's, the, everything there is, is found. But what's well, most interesting to me, at least, is that one of the, the shards, these pieces of, shard of clay that they sent for analysis to a lab, I think it was at, at I think, the University in Tucson, Arizona, the University of Arizona, I think the woman who's an expert in in, in high energy, high temperature, she works with atomic bombs, said the only place I've ever seen this was from a nuclear reaction, that you suddenly have this burst, this very short, like for a few seconds or so, high, super high temperature. And that's of course, exactly the nature of an atomic blast, but it's also the nature of a meteor explosion of a kilometer or so above the earth. It matches exactly, you, you really, if you haven't seen it, you guys, I urge you, Ben Z and Ben, how's that? Uh, I, if you haven't read it, make sure you do. Yeah. The, uh, it's all over, and, and don't go to the religious sites, go to the science sites of it. It's, and they'll tell you there, it looks just like what you read about in Genesis. And it dates to Abraham. Wow. You know, the, layer, the layer dates to Abraham. That's I'm amazing. definitely gonna check that out. Yeah, well, we I know we're strapped for time right now. so. I was going to ask you about the fine-tuning argument because another famous atheist, um, uh, Christopher Hitchens, kind of admitted that that's something that they have to grapple with and it's not so trivial that you could just reject. But, but 
I think you kind of touched on the fine tuning argument anyway, saying how, you know, amazingly harmonious the universe is. Um, but I did want to, I wanted to ask you about the multiverse theory because um, it's become quite popular and it, you can even give a short answer, but I feel like it may be like blatant apologetics. You know, they're trying to move the goalposts because they're saying, they're saying, hey, um, you know, the, the universe doesn't really have a beginning because there's multiple universes. So, um, no, our, you know, our universe has a beginning, but there are other universes. That's what it said. Right. What the, our universe can have a beginning, but there's gazillion other different laws of nature. And ours is a winner. All those others, maybe there's another winner also. You'll right. never know because you can't see out of your universe. Exactly. You can see out of your universe, you'd still be in your universe. It's right. not like, it's not like another galaxy. We can see billions of galaxies. That's our universe. They're right. talking about other, other dimensions. We say length, width, and height. You know what they say? Ogledy, ogledy, ziggly, and not that, but bagadi, dogadi, and diggadi. The yeah. word doesn't even mean anything to us for the dimensions of those universes because we can only think in time, space, and matter. Right. So we would have a totally different lexicon. Diggledy, dogadi, and dogadi. Oh, of course. Well, you got diggledy, you're going to get dogadi. <laughs> you know, I'm not just to have a different language. But they wouldn't use time, space, and matter. They'd have something else. We talk about time, space, and matter, but they might have something we can't. It doesn't fit into here. But that's exactly what Scientific American, no, better than Scientific, Bernard Carr, world famous uh, uh, astrophysicist. If you don't want, according to him, if you don't want God, you better have a multi universe. Yeah. Yeah. Don't want God, you better have a multi universe because you can't explain. Our universe. There's more. There's more. That's the thing. There, there's actually more evidence for the creator, for God, than there is for a multiverse theory. Right. It's, it's the, impossible the to prove. Evidence towards the creative aspect in this world. Yeah. Is forcing the multi. It's, it's, it's yeah. because it's so overwhelming yeah. that this. Yeah. And, and as as it says in Psalm eighty five, the truth shall spring from the earth. The more that we study, like this discussion of stone, and now they find a, a signet in the old city, as. David, I mean, we finally know that David actually, you know, so always assumed it, but we never had a piece of, we have the name of one of the judges from the time of Gideon. English and even Gideon, you're one of the judges. It only appears here, none of the other, in, in the Torah, you know, whether that's him. What I'm saying is the more, the, the more that we dig into the earth, the more we find that the story in the Torah is valid. So why wouldn't the rest of it be valid as well? But the only way you can get out of a God is no uh -huh. other way. So we have, we have one last question. So it's probably the funnest question. So for which Benji was saying, the, the evidence for God is better than a multiverse. There's no data for a multiverse except, except we're perfect. That's, those are the data. For we are perfect. So right. there must be others not perfect. Logic is embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, so this is the last question. I don't know if you want to... Yeah, so this is like my favorite subject because, uh, you know, it's, we're ending on a fun note about the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Uh, we know that there are far more stars in the cosmos than grains of sand on Earth, and there are billions of galaxies like ours. So the statistical probability of existence is, uh, of extraterrestrials is very high. And in light of the New York Times article showing that the Pentagon admits that they're in possession of vehicles not from this planet and the growing wave of US UFO disclosure and declassification 
uh, by credible, you know, high-ranking officials all around the world. Um, and also the leaked Tic Tac UFO recorded by Air Force Commander David Fravor. These are all very famous accounts. Um, yeah. What do you, like, what do you think, um, first of all, do you believe that the possibility exists? And also, what do you think that does to a clear cut, if a clear cut discovery occurs, what will that do to people of faith? Well, what do people of faith? I don't know. It won't do, for, for me, it won't change the idea that there has to be a creator. The creator, as far as life on this, on our planet Earth, has told us what that creator wants. I he or she, I'm sorry if my, my wife were here, she would tell you that she's wonderful. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I, and that information is relative to us. I would say if there is complex life anywhere, and from these, if you've seen the, must have seen the videos. I presume, have you seen the videos of these? Of these, he, he described it as a TikTok. You know, the, yeah, uh, yeah, of course. Something. So you've seen the videos, and they they do make motions that are not possible to explain by conventional, by conventional physics, meaning relativistic physics as well. Does it? If it if it is not some military thing or whatever. I would say that the proof of complex life anywhere is absolute proof that of, of complex life beyond Earth is absolute proof of God. Absolute, absolute, because you can't get it twice a chance. You can't just can't. It's just too complex. Now, but see, I have something. I think it is unfair. You can cut this part out if you like. It is unfair of an, of orthodoxy to say that the Torah says that the only form of intelligent life is on Earth. I don't. That at all? I think that's an opinion. It's a, a rabbinic opinion that that I think the Torah is given to life on Earth. That Torah is our guide for life on Earth. And if there's else like life elsewhere, our Torah is our Torah. It's not changing. You don't, etc. That's it. But if God has decided that you know that God has life elsewhere else, I don't think we have the right to limit God to think. That we are we are the only, but as far as life on Earth, we are the we are the highest level by far, and we have been shown. And we, as a Jewish people, not because it's so great. Look at look at Deut I make my students read Deuteronomy chapter twenty. I can't even remember. God says, "I had my way; I'd wipe you out." He said, "Bunch of shlemiels," but I can't do it because you're my marker. Read it. it's Deuteronomy. It's right before. It's, oh, yeah, it's two chapters place. before. Hmm? So before, it's two chapters before I'd wipe you out if I could, but I can't because you're my marker. Right. So uh, we were chosen. We are life on this. Can there be life elsewhere in the universe? I think from what I understand in the, in the Torah, for certain there can be life elsewhere in the universe. Interestingly, interestingly Rambam, the Rambam, Maimonides actually names the, the created entities that have no form, which are, let's say, angels. And there's the Chayot HaKodesh, whatever that means you know, and all these different uh, creatures that exist. Um, but, you know, we, we have this tradition within Judaism that they don't have free will or they don't have, right? So we, like, like to your point, the Torah is for us. It's not, we have the tradition that it's not for the angels because it's, it's relevant right. to the land of Israel and for our, you know, for human behavior. So that's really, exactly. Yeah. I think that, Possibly why the Orthodox world is threatened by the idea is because of the concept of, you know, that all the universe is centered for man. 
right? And if there's other intelligence, other life, it kind of threatens this idea that the old universe was created for man. Interestingly, though, the Rambam and Moranavuchim, I think, I'm not sure, but I think actually goes against that idea, right? Right, that it's not all for man. Yes. You know, that's, a, that's an egotistic, he has, he has a self serving way of right. thinking about God and religion yeah. in general. It's a, he has a theocentric view of the universe. Uh, which, is, which is really good, I think. Yeah. Of course, absolutely. I think, and the word, the word that, that, that Ben, that you used was tradition. We have a tradition, but a tradition doesn't necessarily mean that it's written in stone or from Sinai. Sure. So, but no matter how it, what it is, for sure, we have the Torah and it is our obligation. And God set this up for, and we see it. We see the people of Israel. God makes a, a prediction when we're a bunch of little people feed slaves. I mean, we're like, you know, cowering and obviously, and, 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 and still the world. I mean, Israel, what makes, at least maybe only here, but Bennett meets with Putin. You know, I mean, you have to realize, I mean, Russia versus, and well, myself example, the position of Jews in this world doesn't make sense. Like the like the uh, like just like the development of DNA by random processes doesn't make sense. This position of Jews in this whole world, when China fasted the when China had the Cultural Revolution, before your, before your time, it's the nineteen in the nineteen seventies going to the early, very beginning about nineteen eighty. The nineteen eighties, China decided to open up to the West. By eighty one, they wanted to bring in foreign experts. To which country did they turn first? Or outside influx of, how do you say, you know, of technical knowledge. Guess what country it was? Obviously, Israel. Israel. Guess yeah. who it was? Of course, Israel. But who was it? I don't know. Me. Really? I was the first foreign advisor. They, now, whether it's true, that's what they said to me. You're the first foreign advisor that we've invited. And they said, and this is the problem for us. They told me, you're an Israeli. You went to invite me. They couldn't invite me directly. Why? Because there's no relations with China for another decade or more. It's 1981. We have no relations with China. So they had the United Nations phone me. Will I be willing to go to Wuxi? It's a city in China. Small, two million people. Wow. The, uh, see, there's a joke. Small. Yeah. And they said, and they and they told me, you are an Israeli, you're in here under the under the radar, but we would well, we value your knowledge. It's just some of the publications I had in something very non-physics, but I'd use physics to get the answers. It had to do with nutrition. And it and it was, you know, but I'd use physics and nuclear physics to get the answer. And that impressed them. And the reason that they I apologize. Just in particular, many, most journals are so expensive that a poor country can't afford them. We publish in Israel several journals that are directly right out of the lab, and they're free, essentially. Okay? And those are, the, those are the articles that I've been publishing, besides the regular fancy, fancy ones. And those are the ones that they knew. Wow. They, they asked me. So China, the largest, probably the largest country in the world, population-wise, comes to Israel. I mean, when China says we have such as a billion people, plus or minus, and they give a statistical scam, <laughs> our whole country thinks in that statistical plus or minus of China. Wow. Yeah, so, so the position of Jews in the world is clear. 
that there's something chosen about us. Not that we're great. I can, I wouldn't, I'm too embarrassed to tell you some of the things I've done in my life. Even now, as a supposed Orthodox, I'm still embarrassed by them. We still do them. <laughs> I'm thinking, but the simple fact is that's a reality. Sure. Doesn't make sense. So we have a, so yeah, we've got the Torah and there can be a thousand other, other whatever they are and whether they have their own Torah, I don't, I think it is unfair for us to, to lay that, lay our tradition as an absolute statement in Sinai. So the fact that I think they're worthy, I, maybe I'm just a dreamer, but I look at these videos and, and uh, talk with people that are associated with those videos, some of those videos, and just uh, because of my work, and uh, I think they're real. And either the government is keeping something very secret from us, which is be fine, there's lots of military secrets, or there are forces in our galaxy, this is not from another galaxy, in our galaxy, in our universe, that is to say, this is not from another universe, this is from our universe, and that they might have, and if they've developed this, so then that means that they've got that technology, and it should not be. The last thing I want, I, I know you're not going to stop it, I see, but the last thing that would help us do, that we would do what the Catholic Church did to Galileo. They probably knew Galileo was correct, but they couldn't stand the fact that the poor peasant in the field would think that the earth wasn't the center. So what does it come out to be? Suddenly we find that the earth isn't the center, that the sun's there, and we're going around the earth. And what do people say? The Bible's wrong. Well, the Bible never said the sun was the center. In fact, in the beginning, so the artist was never the first of the line, right from the first sentence in the Torah. But some misguided cleric in some who knows place church somewhere makes this out. Now selling people the Bible is wrong. And if, if we don't want to paint ourselves into a corner that if there is this extraterrestrial life, and it, it doesn't mean to say yes or no, definitely right now, but I would definitely say it's unfair to say definitely that it's no. And, and from the data that I've seen in the conversations I've had, I think that yes, if, if, if you had a scale, it's more on the yes side than on the, on the no side. That wow. Amazing. means to us. Anyway. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you this giving us your really, time. This was really, really good. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time.